Welcome to Craftlit, the podcast for crafters who like books. My name is Heather Wardover, and I'm podcasting from my corner of the Sonoran Desert, the Old Pueblo, Tucson, Arizona. Episode 87, Odyssey in My Mind. This episode of Craftlet is brought to you by Knitting Out Loud. Listen while you knit. Well, hello! I, 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 I feel like the angel in Angels from America. I, 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 I have so many pieces of paper in front of me because so many things have happened since last I casted, which was before Hawaii. We had a lovely time in Hawaii. Thank you. So many of you emailed me and said, oh, go have a good time. Relax. Enjoy yourself. And we did. We really did. We wound up with with very little money to spend there. We had um, reimbursement issues from my husband's work, which means that we, we were pretty much living on, you know, 15 to 20 dollars a day, which honestly is a gift. And um, as a consequence, we did a lot of laying around on the beach and looking for free things to do. And we did, and we had so much fun. And I even eventually have a little interview with one of the knitting store owners in Oahu, because there are many knitting stores in Oahu. How do I know this? Because there's a website that is a knit map website. I know this has gone around the internet before, but I also know that I lost track of where this website was. So I'm going to post a link to it in the show notes. So no matter you, where you are, you can find a knitting store. Uh, if you go to look for a knitting store and you notice that one is missing, that you know of, you can add it. You don't have to be anyone special. You don't have to email anyone. You can just throw the thing up and link it and you're done. Um, very useful. Very, very useful. Very, very nice. So uh, I have that coming for you. I also have a website that I'm linking to on the show notes for shawl pins. Um, these, every once in a while, I think, oh, what the world needs is a better shawl pin. And I've been kind of tinkering with the wire work that I've been doing to try and make the better shawl pin. I think someone already beat me to it because the stuff on this website is just lovely. So I'm going to link to that as well. I wanted to let you know that uh, the fundraiser for our listener whose son is, um, is recovering from leukemia uh, went very well very, very well. He's, he's doing well right now. Your prayers and good thoughts are working. And, uh, and that was all very good. I also needed to, (laughs) to put a link up to the trailer for the new Indiana Jones movie. And you may say, okay, Heather, we know Heather now. We can see why she's so excited about Indiana Jones. There's another reason. It's because Marion Ravenwood is back. That would be Karen Allen. And I don't know, a year or two ago, somebody's going to email me and have the actual issue. Um, Karen Allen was featured in a knitting magazine because she's been doing knitting designs. And there were pictures of her. And I thought, oh, you know, Karen Allen, she looks great. She's ageless. She's got Dick Clark's disease. And then I went to the official Indiana Jones website. And there are Oh, Lord, I don't know, maybe 12, 14 separate little videos. And some of them are, you know, uh, 
pictures of Indy's hat and coats, and that's fine. But there's um, the trailer, which is the first video available on that, the, the little click-throughs, the little links. <clears throat> but buried in there are two videos from Comic-Con. If you guys don't know what Comic-Con is, Comic-Con is the comics convention. It's held every year. Um, Lost was introduced there. Uh, the show Heroes was introduced there by some very, very savvy people who were working on building a cult following before the show was even released. And wisely, the good folks at uh, Spielberg's Empire decided to introduce the new Indiana Jones movie at Comic-Con this year. And when they did that, they introduced the fact that Karen Allen as Marion Ravenwood would be back. And when they bring her out, I swear to you, you will have the same reaction I did. Harrison? Harrison looks a little bit older. Karen Allen? Karen Allen looks like she walked off the screen in 1981. She looks fabulous. And I had tried to um, get her to uh, speak with me briefly because I know she's really busy and they're going to be going on press junkets and it's going to be insane. But I was hoping to talk to her about the nature of creativity and kind of where um, the spark of creation comes from, which is what I talked to Kat Bordy about, audio which I will play for you a little later tonight. But Karen Allen is a wee bit busy and um, and I certainly understand. Maybe someday later after the movie opens we'll be able to have a conversation with Karen Allen as well. Uh, I'm certainly a fan of her work uh, both in the knitting world and in the acting world and since I have lived in both words, worlds as well I have a great deal of respect for someone who can be as um, as talented comprehensively talented in both as as she is so Indy 4 really exciting coming out soon so happy I have a, a huge thank you um, I actually have a number of thank yous many people donated over the last month and uh, many people emailed me with with lovely lovely notes but I also got a surprise box from Jennifer in San Jose two really wonderful books. One is the One Skein, 30 Quick Projects to Knit or Crochet, which I've been looking at and coveting, and I kept thinking, oh, I should get it. Oh, I won't. I'll put it on my Amazon wish list. And she popped it right off there, and it is such a great book. I'm I'm already, I got it a couple days ago, and I'm already knitting two different things out of it, because I had skeins laying around, and <clears throat> I needed something that was just straight knitting, that, uh, required very little brain power and I found two really A useful and B wonderful and C straightforward uh, and, and rather easy patterns in the one skein book along with some far more complicated and fascinating patterns in there. So I know I'm probably the last person on the block to get it but if you haven't it's something to look at. She also sent a really good book for adults with ADD that's um, very practical. It's called Finding Your Focus, Practical Strategies for the Everyday Challenges Facing Adults with ADD. I know I talked ages ago when my son was diagnosed about realizing that I probably have had ADD all my life and that I used to think it was just a load of malarkey when I was teaching school and, and pretty much an excuse that was used by kids to, well, get away with not doing their work. And that's, I would say, probably in the cases of the students that I taught, about 70% were just using it as an excuse to stay up and play video games all night. But there was 
a good 30% that I now look back on and say, okay, they really did have issues. And we were helping them, trying trying to help them think strategically. But it's it's very challenging because, of course, they don't see even time the same way that everyone else does. This is something my husband has pointed out about me, especially with things like podcasting, the computer, anything that's a, a time suck that, you know, is just a hole that you get stuck in and you can sit there and do it forever. Weaving, needlepoint, cross-stitch, knitting, podcasting, surfing the web, all of these things where for a normal person, you know, you can get stuck in it for a while. I have a vivid memory that the first time I played SimCity, and mind you, this is back in 1989, maybe 1990. The first time I played SimCity, I sat down to start playing, and when I looked up, realized that I had not eaten, I had not gone to the bathroom, and it was eight hours later. That, my friends, that is a time hole that I fell into. So I, I handed my husband the book, and said, hey, look at this, finding your focus, practical strategies. This is what we've been talking about, trying to find strategies that will actually work for my brain. And he flipped through it. Before he flipped through it, he said, yeah, but it's a book. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, for people like you, shouldn't it be, you know, a piece of paper with a bullet list on it or something, something that you can just look at, get the information, get on, get out. And I said, without having opened the book, I said, why don't you flip it open? and see if it isn't written the way you think it should be written for people like me. And he flipped through it and he got this devilish smile on his face and he said, yep, they know what they're doing. So I've started reading it and it really is a wonderful, wonderful book. So Jennifer in San Jose, now that I've just gone on and on about this, thank you so, so much. That was really, really sweet of you and I'm, I'm very appreciative. It's, uh, it's a huge help. You may be able to hear that my voice is still checking in and out. That's because of asthma now, once again. Um, I thought I was getting a cold. It turns out I was just getting uh, massive allergies because whatever it is that's blooming here right now is evil and deadly. And I think it's pink. So evil, deadly, and pink. Bad, bad combination. I have a couple of letters to read to you, but I want to wait for a moment before I do because I wanted to announce one more thing. Today, I am announcing our February drawing winners. These are people who donated in the month of February. And today, I did the drawing. Barbara, Barbara of Alsey, Illinois, has won the caramel from our friend Madame Lederhosen in San Francisco. Congratulations. These will melt in your mouth and give you a sugar high like you've never had in your life. And our winner for the mug from Jenny the Potter is Elizabeth from Tucson, Arizona. Go figure. I seriously do drawings. I like put names in a hat and draw them out. And, and here we have a Tucson winner. So Elizabeth, congratulations. And Barbara, congratulations as well. I will be getting your address information to our donors as soon as possible. And I have an announcement for our March incentive from our own Becky Miller, who has read for us before and will be reading for us once again. Becky is also doing handmade jewelry and she did some beautiful crocheted wire jewelry. Uh, I have a picture that I'll put up on the, the website as well. She also sent me two 
resources for um, silver pieces and, and findings and Swarovski crystal, crystals, uh, which I will, I will show links to on the show notes. Um, but a piece of jewelry made by our own Becky Miller will be available to a March donor. So you still have, oh, you still have three weeks. I'm looking at a calendar that I, I can't actually see the numbers on the dates, but I can kind of see the squares for the dates. So I have done my thank yous. I have gotten myself to where we are going to talk about Cat Bordy. Cat Bordy is spectacular. I know I don't have to tell you this, and I know I've waxed rhapsodic about her book already, and I will continue to do so because, for gosh darn it, it's a really, really good book. But one of the things that I was wondering is when you when you have someone like Cat Bordy, someone who is so unbelievably ingeniously creative, someone for whom the creative spark is so tangible, you know, like like you kind of feel with people like her that if you reach out and touch them, perhaps some of that creativity will also touch you. I know with Annie Modisett, with Kat Bordy, there are, there are people within the crafting world, um, and I know there are people in the weaving world and in the um, spinning world and in the quilting world as well who are rock stars like this. And I'm, I'm going to assume there are people in, in other artistic endeavors that, that work this way as well. There's something so intense about their brilliance that I know people crave classes with them just for the opportunity of being able to say, oh, oh, maybe I can catch some of that. And I don't know that we consciously think that, but it's certainly the byproduct of it because because we do seek them out and we do want to have classes with them. Well, I thought it would be interesting to talk to Kat Bordy because her books come out and we're doing Frankenstein and Victor is kind of the antithesis of that creative spark. And it's not, he's not the antithesis. He's, what is he? He's the doppelganger of that antithesis. He's, he's the evil twin, you know, that instead of creating something beautiful and helpful that can um, make the world a better place, I think initially he starts off thinking that that's why he's creating life course he's haunted by his mother's death and Mary Shelley's haunted by her mother's death and I think it's to Mary Shelley's credit that ultimately she sees that this was probably not the wisest move. Victor of course is so trapped in his own his own hubris that um and Hamartia that he he can't see he can't see he can't see. Well Kat's kind of the opposite of that. Her her genius is no less genius in, in many ways, I'm, I guess that sounds kind of ridiculous comparing her to somebody who's created life. But I think anytime you, you have someone who is able to actually physically re-envision something that has been so embedded in our brains, like a sock and the construction of a sock, that's real genius because it requires you to look at something that's very familiar and look at it a completely different way. And in some ways, improve on the original. It's, um, well, it's spectacular. And I'm not going to play you the whole audio, but I did talk to her specifically about the act of creation and how long she's been like this. So I'm going to play that part of the audio and then we'll get on to Frankenstein. Well, thank you so much for talking to me, first off. You're welcome. I, I know how busy you are and you've, you're flying off to a uh, 
what, TNNA next? Um, Stitches. Stitches. You just came back from TNNA. Well, one of the things that had happened, which I I wrote to you about in the email, was Uh for Craft Lit, right now the podcast is doing the book Frankenstein. And oh, um, is that about knitting? Well, strangely, no. <laughs> Although I suppose if you consider knitting body parts together, then absolutely, then you could, you could Good say idea. It's, it's about that. <laughs> but it is about inspiration and creativity and the act of creation. And as I was reading your new book, which I know a lot of my friends are still scrambling to get because the local yarn stores are on their fourth or fifth or sixth order uh-huh. of the book. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, the The thing that struck me and made me want to want to get in touch with you is that you kind of more than any other writer of patterns or knitting writer out there in the world right now, you're really, really creative and you're kind of inspirationally creative. And so mm-hmm. I wanted to talk to you for a little bit about where that comes from. You know, Victor Frankenstein really is a schmo, and he, he does some horrible, horrible things, and he's not a particularly good creator. And you seem uh-huh. like you no, are. No, wait, we're talking about the Frankenstein, the, mm-hmm. the traditional thing. I thought maybe there was a book that I didn't know. Go ahead. <laughs> no, well, the, the, he's, he's not so good at being a creator, and you are. Uh-huh. And so I wondered, where does that come from for you? Where do you well, find um, that inspiration? I don't. It's almost like where doesn't it come from? Um, maybe I'm plagued with over <laughs> with hyper, hyper creativity, <laughs> and they should have come up with a drug for me long ago. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> don't do um, it. I, it's just it's just there. Um, I was a difficult child to raise because um, I was constant. I. I I refused to do anything I was told for the most part, just on principle, just because there's a million other ways to do it or something else I wanted to do. Right. Uh, I've always detested directions. I think they're the most boring use of language in the world. But of course, I write directions. <laughs> but you write <laughs> but them very well. I try to make well. my directions interesting. <laughs> you yeah, do. <laughs> you. I love words. I, lo- I consider words, you know, one of my key creative tools. And, of course, you don't have to go buy them anywhere. They're available for Which free is nice. in your head. Um, <clears throat> you don't need a stash of them. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> they come in all colors. I could go on and on about <laughs> words. But um, I just, I'm one of those people who um, have um, an idea. It's not hard to come up with ideas. And, and really, um, I'm beginning to, to realize that maybe I come up with too many ideas and, and I have to create more of an avenue into my work for people who want to not have so many ideas. It's not that I'm going to come up with fewer, but that I'm trying to calm down a little once in a while oh, so that other people can access my work as well. Well, how, um, how long have you been actually making a living knitting and, and writing books that are... That began um, with the publication of Sock Soar in 2001. I was teaching school. I was a middle school teacher. Oh, and God bless you. I, well, I, I, I love middle school kids because they're, you know, they, they come up with a my idea a minute and yes, all causing trouble. And <laughs> that's the kind of person myself. <laughs> I could relate to it. Um, anyway, the, the minute the book was out, it started earning me enough money that I began to think, you know, I may be able to break free of the, the alarm clock one day here. Nice. And it worked out that way. Um, so that's when I began to actually earn money in the fiber world. And I, I had not set out to do it. I just wanted to write that book because 
I thought people needed to know that um, there was an alternative to double-pointed needles yeah. for small things. Yeah, and you personally saved my life in doing that. <laughs> oh, good. Oh, good. Very good. And of course, since then, um, Sarah Hauschka wrote The Magic Loop, which, you know, eliminated one more needle. Right. And, and you know, there, there are lots of people who like that um, better than my method. Um, I still like two circular needles best, yeah. probably because I'm so used to it. And there are some things you can do with that that you can't do with one. Yeah. But at any rate, um, it I, I just like to spread good ideas, shall we say. So before before you were able to stop teaching middle school, what did you do with all your ideas? Did they just go straight into your teaching and your They kids? went into my teaching. Yeah. Um, teaching was the only thing I've ever done where I would actually um, have my creative idea tank on empty at the end of the day, which to me was a miracle. Wow. That it could ever actually go empty because you had to put... So you had to put a gazillion different creative things into the day in order to um, do right by the kids. Yeah. Because they deserved um, to have fun at school and not be tortured. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you know they learn they learn best when they're engaged, and if you can, yeah, if you can do that, yeah. it's a gift. I taught it's high true. school for ten years, and it oh, was oh, good for you. Similar. Good for you. Yeah. Yeah. Good work. Yeah. And knitter, knitters as well. I try to make. My teaching, you know, when I teach workshops, they're really fun. And I try to put that same spirit in my books because if people are having fun, their brains are actually lit up. And if they're not, their brains are shut down. And I so why agree. not do things the easy way and have fun at the same time? Well, I know in the in the, the latest book, with the one that just mm-hmm. really blew me new away. Pathways. Oh, the new pathways. The uh-huh. reading the narrative, um, was easily as enjoyable as actually knitting the patterns. I've done both baby booties and I'm I'm stashed and ready to go on a Coriolis sock. <laughs> I haven't I'm, oh, good. I'm still okay. doing holiday knitting. <laughs> Social oh, obligation my. knitting. Be ready for next year. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> but I I as I was reading it and was reading the section about how with the the first of the two baby booties you got the idea of switching around where the spinning the gusset that's where I actually started to get the idea that I I should I should talk to you because you you saw something a different way Mm -hmm. and it seems to me that for most of us where you know we're running around or we have all these obligations seeing things differently and allowing yourself to break out of whatever rut you're in is the Mm -hmm. hardest thing for most people to do Mm-hmm. And I didn't know if if you. It sounds like pretty routinely for you. You're always seeing things differently. I do in um, in some parts of my life, knitting, for instance. But I have to tell you, I, I'm completely familiar with the feeling of being stuck in a rut in other areas. Oh, that makes so everybody it's not, feel better. Yeah, I mean, I, I wish I could say, oh, I'm not stuck in a rut anywhere. But I'm 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 as profoundly stuck in other ruts in other parts of my life as anybody else. Oh, good. It's just that, <laughs> that I, I, yeah, it's all well, good. good from your point of view. Um, so it's not like I'm, I'm different that way. It's just that in other part, you know, things like knitting in the sort of the creative, artistic, um, and in writing and so on, I'm, I'm quite free. God, and, that's wonderful. And I, occasionally the rest of my life breaks free too. So I, I know what it's like, and, and that's certainly the goal with one's entire life is to not be stuck in a rut, but respond to things as they actually are. 
And so, you see, there's hope for all of us. <laughs> I just had the best time. That wasn't all of the audio, but that was that was the part that uh, that really had something to do with with creativity. And I I very much appreciated Cat speaking to me uh, so early in the morning. I got my time difference transposed in my brain and called her too early, but luckily it, it worked out better for her as well. So, so thank goodness, because I felt really bad. Um, this has nothing to do with what I titled this episode, which is Odyssey in my mind. And the reason I did that was because I watched another act of creativity this morning. Today was Odyssey of the Mind, which is a national, international competition among school-age children, where they're given a problem to solve or to present a solution for. And they have to create a set and props and... Uh, write their own script and make their own costumes and then they have to present in in front of a panel of judges their solution to the problem. And my little boy, my seven-year-old, he was in Odyssey of the Mind today. And if, if you have an opportunity to help your child or a group of children to do this, please, 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 please do. It's a wonderful program. It is engaging children in the kind of thinking that is so, so deeply important. It's the thinking outside the box thinking. It's what Cat Bordy does. But it's also the kind of thinking that my grandfather uh, used to do. He, I think I've mentioned him before. He was an engineer. He built a car when he was 11. The car that he built when he was 12 is still on the road in Riverside, California. Um, we used to joke that his middle name was MacGyver because if you gave him, you know, string and masking tape and spit, maybe some tinfoil, he could build a bomb or, or a refrigerator for that matter. And uh, people don't think like that very often anymore. And I don't think that's so good for us. It's, um, it's important to have visionaries and wizards out in the world who can see things and and make magic happen out of twine and masking tape. And uh, I saw a whole lot of kids this morning who were doing that. And it made me think about a lot of things, Cat Bordy being one of them. But it also made me think about my grandfather. And thinking about my grandmother, grandfather made me think about my grandmother because she passed away last night. And her life was not one of inventiveness and joy. In fact, she had a, a rather difficult time of it. And... Um, wound up unhappy for much of her life and living vicariously through the rest of us, which made it hard on everybody. But uh, as I was driving around today, I was thinking back, my little mental odyssey, uh, to something that my husband said a long time ago. And because he's a playwright and because he tends to write really spectacular women, he occasionally comes up with these incredibly deep insights that just make me look at him and go, how does this come to you? You know, you're you're too young. When he was 25, he was coming up with stuff like this at UCLA. So what he had said was, as parents, we do the best we can with what we have. And if we are people who were raised in damaging situations and we are damaged people, we will do the best we can with what we have to make our children's lives better. And for some people, they do spectacularly well. My mother and father were extraordinary parents, and neither of them had had particularly 
uh, inspiring childhoods, but it sure didn't stop them from being wonderful for me and my sister. Um, other people, they do the best with what they've got, and sometimes it's not so great. But that doesn't mean they weren't trying, and it doesn't mean they weren't trying the best they could. And to expect more of a person than that is unfair. And and so I say goodbye to my grandmother with mixed feelings because it wasn't an easy time and she made it very difficult for my mother. And of course, being a good daughter, I'm extraordinarily protective of my parents. Um, you know, when, when somebody comes down on you, you circle the wagons and it's your family that, that matters. And, and my nuclear family is, is pretty wonderful. But, um, but it's impossible for me not to look back on what she did, pretty much single-handedly raising three daughters, three energetic daughters, in a time when energetic daughters were probably not such a great thing. Um, and she grew up and lived through and raised children through a time when women didn't have many choices. And of course, that's not the time period we live in now. And it certainly would be unfair of me to look back and judge her from the standards of life that I'm allowed to have now as a woman. Um, I'm certainly afforded much, much more freedom than she ever dreamed of having when she was my age. So it's a difficult goodbye because it's a complicated goodbye. But I also know that it's not an uncommon goodbye. Many, many of us have already gone through it. Many of us will be going through it soon. And, um, and there it is. So I'm, I'm experiencing my own little odyssey and, um, and remembering that like Odysseus in the Odyssey, there's a reason why Odysseus had to travel for 10 years between leaving the Trojan War and coming home because you can't, you can't switch it off that fast. The Moses's people had to wander in the desert for 40 years and let an entire generation die off before a, a group of people who had been slaves could live free. You had to lose the slave generation to be able to gain the free generation. And so I know that um, saying goodbye to my grandmother for all of us is going to be a long process and one that will take um, some time. But that's not a bad thing. That's just that's just the way it is. So we've talked about Cat Bordy. We've talked about Odyssey of the Mind. We've talked about my personal Odyssey of the Mind. And now we're going to talk about Victor's Odyssey of the Mind. And before I get to that, I have two emails that I want to share. One is from Elizabeth Miller, who is a few um, podcasts behind. She's actually still on Tale of Two Cities. But she said, I'm way behind on the podcast, but I just had to write a response to episode 62. Another listener had written in about her reaction to Dolores Umbridge from the fifth Harry Potter book. I had a similar reaction to that character, but mine was more because she reminds me so much of an odious English teacher I had my junior year of high school. Love that word, odious. Anyway, you asked if we had really strong reactions to other characters, and I actually had a very strong response to Madame Defarge the first time I read the book. I read Tale of Two Cities for the first time during my first quarter of my freshman year at college. I'm pretty sensitive to what I read, particularly when I know that it's historically accurate. 
I'd learned to knit in the second grade and had just taken it up again the spring before. When I finished Tale of Two Cities, I put my knitting away and got out a Christmas cross-stitch, even though it was still late October. I didn't want to touch the knitting needles. It sounds weird to me now that a novel could create an aversion like that, but it really did. I had been completely wrapped up in the story and felt really close to all the protagonists. I picked the knitting back up in January when three or four other girls in the dorm started learning to knit, and I'm really glad I did, and I've been knitting obsessively ever since. Anyway, I just thought I'd share the story with you. It seemed like too big a coincidence to pass up. Um, and I thought that that is absolutely interesting. There there have been a number of books that I've had uh, really, really strong reactions to. Um, one of them was Dune, which just kind of came back to me in a huge wave. Um, but yeah, I think visceral reactions to books, um, occasionally when the world is so completely created for you that, uh, that you can see yourself in it, it, it is very hard not to be um, really, really affected. And then I got this email from Eleanor. Eleanor, Eleanor who made my week. This is one of my favorite letters ever. She said, I've had a great time listening reading all kinds of classics and fun stuff. I feel pretty cultured when I can talk about Pride and Prejudice or Tristan and Isolde. I'm a senior in high school as well as a knitter, so listening to you is kind of like taking a really awesome English class. I can read the book, understand the themes, get the literary, literary styles, and not write any essays. Anyway, that's not my story. Today I was sitting in English class. I'm taking a class called The American West, taught by the English teacher who seems to me to be the most brilliant and most strange man on the planet. He's a runner and wears tiny shorts and has a really hot wife, and he's really freaking smart, but he also spent a year living in a cabin alone and really doesn't talk to kids in the hallways. I go to a small school, so this is odd. He doesn't own a computer or a TV, and at school his computer isn't located on its desk. It's on a smaller desk, off to the side, and if it's not his own, as if it's not his own, but it apparently is. Okay, so I'm in class. We're talking about the novel we're reading, The Virginian. I'm going to assume you know it. The narrator in the novel is this cultured, educated Easterner who befriends the Virginian, but isn't always around when the action is happening. So the narration switches from his first-person point of view to a third-person omniscient without much more than a how-do-you-do. We a very small class, eight kids, noticed this and questioned it. So I started talking about Frankenstein. I'm reading Frankenstein, I said, and it's got the same unreliable narrator problem. That whole thing about the monster telling Frankenstein telling the guy on the boat writing to his sister. It's all about the diegetic levels, and you just have to accept that maybe he's not there, but the story is still the author being like, okay, here's what happened. And my English teacher said, the what? I said, what? What was that word? He asked. Diegetic levels? I said, surprised and hoping he wouldn't be about to correct me. I've never heard that word before, he said. What does it mean? It's narration inside narration, I said, my brain undergoing a mild internal explosion. Best moment of my life. Casually dropping into conversation a literary term my brilliant English teacher did not know. Apparently, I can graduate yesterday. Thank you. I, I have honestly hung this letter up on my wall because my whole goal in life is to get more things like this to happen to people. I'm so excited. So Eleanor has made my week. I hope you all can share in my joy <laughs> as, you know, you're kind of, what is it, um, onlookers to, uh, to the fabulousness that, that is Eleanor. And, um, and now we can get on with Frankenstein. We are so close to the end, uh, the tragic, tragic end. Can you feel it coming? Today we're doing chapter 21. <clears throat> you may have noticed that Victor, uh, when we left him off in 20, was in an emotional rough patch. He is going to stay there for a little while. 
And um, we've noticed before that he has extremely physical reactions to psychological problems, especially guilt. Uh, guilt seems to be the big trigger that, that um, switches him into a, a physical um, illness. Um, this was not terribly uncommon. It certainly wasn't terribly uncommon around women. However, I have a theory. <laughs> I'm sure you're not surprised. I had to wear a corset in a show a long time ago at UCLA, I think I've mentioned this before, where they measured our measurements, you know, all of our measurements, and took specific ribcage measurements, and then they subtracted an inch from each of those measurements, built our corsets to those new measurements, and then proceeded to put those corsets on us and lace them up the back so that the two edges met, thus condensing us by an inch in circumference. Um, at the time, we were in really amazing shape. I, I was working out literally seven days a week. We were doing three to five hours of dance rehearsal a day, um, rarely sleeping, rarely eating. We were all rock solid. And you put, uh, I think there were 20 girls, us, college seniors, <clears throat> into these corsets. And some of us started passing out because honestly we couldn't breathe at all. So this whole women are weak thing, I don't buy it for a second. I, I think it was the corsets. Um, with the men doing it though, I'm a little curious to know if people actually did honestly fall down and pass out all the time back then, if it was perhaps because they had had a childhood illness or extreme low blood pressure, or were the romantics just so in touch with their own emotional reality that when something in their emotions spiked, did it really overheat them? And did they really make themselves sick? Because the, the romantics were well, they were those kind of people. And we know from like the Salem witch trials that the mass hysteria, that's a real thing that really can happen. I mean, you can convince yourself of anything if you work hard enough at it. You could probably convince yourself that you were royalty as one girl did in my eighth grade reading class. I swear to you, she was trying to pass herself off as Irish royalty. It was actually very, very sad. And, and I, I don't, I really honestly don't think she thought she was lying. I think she was so desperately in need of affirmation that she kind of created this alter ego and it was very hard for her when it came crashing down. Um, so we know mass hysteria happens. We know the Salem witch trials was an incident of that. Uh, there have been other incidents like that. And, um, and Victor certainly, he, he falls somewhere in the middle of all of that. I, I don't know that anyone can really tell one way or the other. The romantics all seem to write about this kind of thing, overwhelming emotion, causing kind of an emotional stress. But Victor really, he goes for it. And he's going to go for it again in this chapter. That's why I'm going on about it. He's going to go like that again in this chapter. So try not to get annoyed with him this time. Instead, try to watch how it happens. Because if you just watch him do it, you are going to get irked and you'll probably switch it off and say, Ugh. but then you're, you'll miss some important things. Also, Clerval shows up again. Note here 
that his purpose throughout the story is to draw out humanity. And he does it again. He's, his job is bringing people together, usually Victor with the outside world or people in general together because he's such an engaging and loving and wonderful character. So he's doing it again here. And you'll see who he, who he brings together in this, in this um, particular chapter. Um, <clears throat> along with that Clairval thing motif, um, notice that, that Victor is isolated by choice. Yes, he did something terrible, and yes, he feels horrible about it, and yes, as a consequence, he's kind of exiling himself, but it's still his choice. He doesn't really want to be part of a, a community right now. The monster does. The monster does, uh, the creature, I don't like calling him the monster, the creature does, the creature wants to be part of a larger community. He understands the importance of it, and he understands Clairval's relationship in that need. So listen for that. Watch and see what uh, what the creature is up to. And um, and then it's it's a pretty quick descent from here on out. I am obviously going to be going to my grandmother's funeral in the coming week. My goal is to at least put out the chapters so that you can hear uh, the next couple of chapters and and soon end the book Frankenstein. Uh, there may not be a whole lot of commentary or any links or anything like that, but but there it is. Don't forget that there is now a March incentive for donating in March. We have Becky's uh, beautiful handmade jewelry, which uh, there will be a picture of on the show notes. I also wanted to let you know that I have decided once and for all that, gosh darn it, the next book is going to be Little Women. And I know quite a few of you uh, quite a few of you have read it, and uh, a number of you have said, well, I read it a long time ago. I really don't want to listen to it again. I challenge you to listen to the first few chapters. I know some people tuned out for Tale of Two Cities because they felt the same way I had felt about it, and I was kind of sorry about that because I really did. I was overwhelmed by how much better it was uh, now than it was when I was 14. Um, Little Women is far more relevant to today's world than I had thought. And I know I said the same thing about Frankenstein and probably I said the same thing about about Tale of Two Cities and Pride and Prejudice, but I guess that's what I'm attracted to when I'm attracted to classic literature. I, I, I am attracted to the pieces of it that connect us to it. And uh, I firmly believe that that's what makes classic literature classic, is that whatever it is, the themes, the motifs, the people, the characters, the time, the place, the setting, whatever, it, it has some meaning for us in our modern world. And I am almost done with Little Women again, and uh, I'm constantly surprised by how important it is, especially for, for us we fabulous people to, um, to listen to it. So I leave you now. I'm not going to pop back in after the chapters because I'm used up way too much time. And, uh, and I will try and get those other chapters out to you early this next week so that you have, uh, something to listen to while I'm in Riverside. Thank you again for all of your support, your emails, your wonderful messages and your gifts. You are just the best group of listeners 
on the planet. Oh, oh, and hello to Teresa, who I met at Odyssey of the Mind, who's a podcast listener. I checked in and she said, I listened to your podcast. Um, I had a lovely time talking to her and it just cemented the fact that we are the best people in the world. With that, I leave you with chapter 21 and 22 of Frankenstein by Mary Shelley. I was soon introduced into the presence of the magistrate, an old benevolent man with calm and mild manners. He looked upon me, however, with some degree of severity, and then, turning towards my conductors, he asked who appeared as witnesses on this occasion. About half a dozen men came forward, and, one being selected by the magistrate, he deposed that he had been out fishing the night before with his son and brother-in-law, Daniel Nugent, when, about ten o'clock, they observed a strong northerly blast rising, and they accordingly put in for port. It was a very dark night, as the moon had not yet risen. They did not land at the harbor, but, as they had been accustomed, at a creek about two miles below. He walked on first, carrying a part of the fishing tackle, and his companions followed him at some distance. As he was proceeding along the sands, he struck his foot against something, and fell at his length on the ground. His companions came up to assist him, and by the light of their lantern they found that he had fallen on the body of a man, who was, to all appearance, dead. Their first supposition was that it was the corpse of some person who had been drowned and was thrown on shore by the waves, but on examination they found that the clothes were not wet and even that the body was not then cold. They instantly carried it to the cottage of an old woman near the spot and endeavoured, but in vain, to restore it to life. It appeared to be a handsome young man, about five and twenty years of age. He had apparently been strangled, for there was no sign of any violence except the black mark of fingers on his neck. The first part of this deposition did not in the least interest me, but when the mark of the fingers was mentioned, I remembered the murder of my brother, and felt myself extremely agitated. My limbs trembled, and a mist came over my eyes, which obliged me to lean on a chair for support. The magistrate observed me with a keen eye, and of course drew an unfavorable augury from my manner. The son confirmed his father's account, but when Daniel Nugent was called, he swore positively that just before the fall of his companion, he saw a boat, with a single man in it, at a short distance from the shore, and as far as he could judge by the light of a few stars, it was the same boat in which I had just landed." A woman deposed that she lived near the beach, and was standing at the door of her cottage, waiting for the return of the fisherman, about an hour before she heard of the discovery of the body, when she saw a boat with only one man in it push off from that part of the shore where the corpse was afterwards found. Another woman confirmed the account of the fisherman having brought the body into her house. It was not cold. They put it into a bed and rubbed it, and Daniel went to the town for an apothecary, but life was quite gone. Several other men were examined concerning my landing, and they agreed that, with the strong north wind that had arisen during the night, it was very probable that I had beaten about for many hours and had been obliged to return nearly to the same spot from which I had departed. Besides, they observed that it appeared that I had brought the body from another place, and it was likely that as I did not appear to know the shore, I might have put into the harbour, ignorant of the distance of the town of Blank, from the place where I had deposited the corpse. Mr. Kerwin, on hearing this evidence, 
desired that I should be taken into the room where the body lay for interment, that it might be observed what effect the sight of it would produce upon me. This idea was probably suggested by the extreme agitation I had exhibited when the mode of the murder had been described. I was accordingly conducted, by the magistrate and several other persons, to the inn. I could not help being struck by the strange coincidences that had taken place during this eventful night, but, knowing that I had been conversing with several persons in the island I had inhabited about the time that the body had been found, I was perfectly tranquil as to the consequences of the affair. I entered the room where the corpse lay, and was led up to the coffin. How can I describe my sensations on beholding it? I feel yet parched with horror, nor can I reflect on that terrible moment without shuddering and agony. The examination, the presence of the magistrate and witnesses, passed like a dream from my memory when I saw the lifeless form of Henry Clerval stretched before me. I gasped for breath, and throwing myself on the body, I exclaimed, Have my murderous machinations deprived you also, my dearest Henry, of life? Two I have already destroyed. Other victims await their destiny. But you, Clerval, my friend, my benefactor. The human frame could no longer support the agonies that I endured, and I was carried out of the room in strong convulsions. A fever succeeded to this. I lay for two months on the point of death. My ravings, as I afterward heard, were frightful. I called myself the murderer of William, of Justine, and of Clerval. Sometimes I entreated my attendants to assist me in the destruction of the fiend by whom I was tormented, and at others I felt the fingers of the monster already grasping my neck, and screamed aloud with agony and terror. Fortunately, as I spoke my native language, Mr. Kerwin alone understood me, but my gestures and bitter cries were sufficient to affright the other witnesses. Why did I not die? More miserable than man ever was before, why did I not sink into forgetfulness and rest? Death snatches away many blooming children, the only hopes of their doting parents. How many brides and youthful lovers have been one day in the bloom of health and hope, and the next a prey for worms and the decay of the tomb? Of what materials was I made, that I could thus resist so many shocks, which, like the turning of the wheel, continually renewed the torture? But I was doomed to live, and in two months found myself as awaking from a dream, in a prison, stretched on a wretched bed, surrounded by jailers, turnkeys, bolts, and all the miserable apparatus of a dungeon. It was morning, I remember, when I thus awoke to understanding. I had forgotten the particulars of what had happened, and only felt as if some great misfortune had suddenly overwhelmed me. But when I looked around and saw the barred windows and the squalidness of the room in which I was, all flashed across my memory, and I groaned bitterly. This sound disturbed an old woman who was sleeping in a chair beside me. She was a hired nurse, the wife of one of the turnkeys, and her countenance expressed all those bad qualities which often characterize that class. The lines of her face were hard and rude, like that of persons accustomed to see without sympathizing in sights of misery. Her tone expressed her entire indifference. She addressed me in English, and the voice struck me as one that I had heard during my sufferings. "'Are you better now, sir?' said she. I replied in the same language, with a feeble voice, "'I believe I am, but if it be all true, if indeed I did not dream, I am sorry that I am still alive to feel this misery and horror.' "'For that matter,' replied the old woman, "'if you mean about the gentleman you murdered, 
I believe that it were better for you if you were dead, for I fancy it will go hard with you. However, that's none of my business. I am sent to nurse you and get you well. I do my duty with a safe conscience. It were well if everybody did the same. I turned with loathing from the woman who could utter so unfeeling a speech to a person just saved, on the very edge of death. But I felt languid and unable to reflect on all that had passed. The whole series of my life appeared to me as a dream. I sometimes doubted if indeed it were all true, for it never presented itself to my mind with the force of reality. As the images that floated before me became more distinct, I grew feverish. A darkness pressed around me. No one was near me who soothed me with the gentle voice of love. No dear hand supported me. The physician came and prescribed medicines, and the old woman prepared them for me. But utter carelessness was visible in the first, and the expression of brutality was strongly marked in the visage of the second. Who could be interested in the fate of a murderer but the hangman who would gain his fee? These were my first reflections, but I soon learned that Mr. Kerwin had shown me extreme kindness. He had caused the best room in the prison to be prepared for me, wretched indeed was the best, and it was he who had provided a physician and a nurse. It is true he seldom came to see me, for although he ardently desired to relieve the sufferings of every human creature, he did not wish to be present at the agonies and miserable ravings of a murderer. He came, therefore, sometimes to see that I was not neglected, but his visits were short and with long intervals. One day, while I was gradually recovering, I was seated in a chair, my eyes half open and my cheeks livid like those in death. I was overcome by gloom and misery, and often reflected I had better seek death than desire to remain in a world which to me was replete with wretchedness. At one time I considered whether I should not declare myself guilty and suffer the penalty of the law, less innocent than poor Justine had been. Such were my thoughts when the door of my apartment was opened and Mr. Kerwin entered. His countenance expressed sympathy and compassion. He drew a chair close to mine and addressed me in French. I fear that this place is very shocking to you. Can I do anything to make you more comfortable? I thank you, but all that you mention is nothing to me. On the whole earth there is no comfort which I am capable of receiving. I know that the sympathy of a stranger can be of but of little relief to one borne down as you are by so strange a misfortune. But you will, I hope, soon quit this melancholy abode, for doubtless evidence can easily be brought to free you from the criminal charge. That is my least concern. I am, by a course of strange events, become the most miserable of mortals. Persecuted and tortured as I am, and have been, can death be any evil to me? Nothing indeed could be more unfortunate and agonizing than the strange chances that have lately occurred. You were thrown by some surprising accident on this shore, renowned for its hospitality, seized immediately, and charged with murder. The first sight that was presented to your eyes was the body of your friend, murdered in so unaccountable a manner, and placed, as it were, by some fiend across your path. As Mr. Kerwin said this, notwithstanding the agitation I endured on this retrospect of my sufferings, I also felt considerable surprise at the knowledge he seemed to possess concerning me. I suppose some astonishment was exhibited in my countenance, for Mr. Kerwin hastened to say, Immediately upon your being taken ill, all the papers that were on your person were brought to me, and I examined them that I might discover some trace by which I could send to your relations an account of your misfortune and illness. I found several letters, and among others, one which I discovered from its commencement to be from your father. I instantly wrote to Geneva. Nearly two months have elapsed since the departure of my letter. 
but you are ill. Even now you tremble. You are unfit for agitation of any kind. The suspense is a thousand times worse than the most horrible event. Tell me what new scene of death has been acted, and whose murder I am now to lament. Your family is perfectly well, said Mr. Kerwin, with gentleness, and someone, a friend, is come to visit you. I know not by what chain of thought the idea presented itself, but it instantly darted into my mind that the murderer had come to mock at my misery and taunt me with the death of Clerval, as a new incitement for me to comply with his hellish desires. I put my hand before my eyes and cried out in agony, "'Oh, take him away! I cannot see him! For God's sake, do not let him enter!' Mr. Kerwin regarded me with a troubled countenance. He could not help regarding my exclamation as a presumption of my guilt, and said in rather a severe tone, "'I should have thought, young man, that the presence of your father would have been welcome instead of inspiring such violent repugnance.' "'My father!' cried I, while every feature and every muscle was relaxed from anguish to pleasure. "'Is my father indeed come? How kind, how very kind! But where is he? Why does he not hasten to me?' My change of manner surprised and pleased the magistrate. Perhaps he thought that my former exclamation was a momentary return of delirium, and now he instantly resumed his former benevolence. He rose and quitted the room with my nurse, and in a moment my father entered it. Nothing at this moment could have given me greater pleasure than the arrival of my father. I stretched out my hand to him and cried, "'Are you then safe, and Elizabeth, and Ernest?' My father calmed me with assurances of their welfare, and endeavoured, by dwelling on these subjects so interesting to my heart, to raise my desponding spirits. But he soon felt that a prison cannot be the abode of cheerfulness. "'What a place is this that you inhabit, my son?' said he, looking mournfully at the barred windows and wretched appearance of the room. "'You travel to seek happiness, but a fatality seems to pursue you. And poor Clerval!' The name of my unfortunate and murdered friend was an agitation too great to be endured in my weak state. I shed tears. "'Alas, yes, my father,' replied I. "'Some destiny of the most horrible kind hangs over me, and I must live to fulfil it, or surely I should have died on the coffin of Henry.' We were not allowed to converse for any length of time, for the precarious state of my health rendered every precaution necessary that could ensure tranquillity. Mr. Kerwin came in and insisted that my strength should not be exhausted by too much exertion. But the appearance of my father was to me like that of my good angel, and I gradually recovered my health. As my sickness quitted me, I was absorbed by a gloomy and black melancholy that nothing could dissipate. The image of Clerval was forever before me, ghastly and murdered. More than once the agitation into which these reflections threw me made my friends dread a dangerous relapse. Alas, why did they preserve so miserable and detested a life? It was surely that I might fulfill my destiny, which is now drawing to a close. Soon, oh, very soon, will death extinguish these throbbings and relieve me from the mighty weight of anguish that bears me to the dust. And, in executing the award of justice, I shall also sink to rest. Then the appearance of death was distant, although the wish was ever present to my thoughts and I often sat for hours motionless and speechless, wishing for some mighty revolution that might bury me and my destroyer in its ruins. The season of the Assizes approached. I had already been three months in prison, and although I was still weak and in continual danger of a relapse, I was obliged to travel nearly a hundred miles to the country town where the court was held. 
Mr. Kerwin charged himself with every care of collecting witnesses and arranging my defence. I was spared the disgrace of appearing publicly as a criminal, as the case was not brought before the court that decides on life and death. The grand jury rejected the bill, on its being proved that I was on the Orkney Islands at the hour the body of my friend was found, and a fortnight after my removal I was liberated from prison. My father was enraptured on finding me freed from the vexations of a criminal charge, that I was again allowed to breathe the fresh atmosphere and permitted to return to my native country. I did not participate in these feelings, for to me the walls of a dungeon or a palace were alike hateful. The cup of life was poisoned for ever, and although the sun shone upon me, as upon the happy and gay of heart, I saw around me nothing but a dense and frightful darkness, penetrated by no light but the glimmer of two eyes that glared upon me. Sometimes they were the expressive eyes of Henry, languishing in death, the dark orbs nearly covered by the lids and the long black lashes that fringed them. Sometimes it was the watery, clouded eyes of the monster, as I first saw them in my chamber at Ingolstadt. My father tried to awaken in me the feelings of affection. He talked of Geneva, which I should soon visit, of Elizabeth and Ernest, but these words only drew deep groans from me. Sometimes, indeed, I felt a wish for happiness, and thought with melancholy delight of my beloved cousin, or longed, with a devouring malady du pays, to see once more the blue lake and rapid Rhone that had been so dear to me in early childhood. But my general state of feeling was a torpor, in which a prison was as welcome a residence as the divinest scene in nature, and these fits were seldom interrupted but by paroxysms of anguish and despair." At these moments I often endeavoured to put an end to the existence I loathed, and it required unceasing attendance and vigilance to restrain me from committing some dreadful act of violence. Yet one duty remained to me, the recollection of which finally triumphed over my selfish despair. It was necessary that I should return without delay to Geneva, there to watch over the lives of those I so fondly loved, and to lie in wait for the murderer, that if any chance led me to the place of his concealment, or if he dared again to blast me by his presence, I might, with unfailing aim, put an end to the existence of the monstrous image which I had endued with the mockery of a soul still more monstrous. My father still desired to delay our departure, fearful that I could not sustain the fatigues of a journey, for I was a shattered wreck, the shadow of a human being. My strength was gone, I was a mere skeleton, and fever night and day preyed upon my wasted frame. Still, as I urged our leaving Ireland with such inquietude and impatience, my father thought it best to yield. We took our passage on board a vessel bound for Havre de Grasse, and sailed with a fair wind from the Irish shores. It was midnight. I lay on the deck, looking at the stars and listening to the dashing of the waves. I hailed the darkness that shut Ireland from my sight, and my pulse beat with a feverish joy when I reflected that I should soon see Geneva." The past appeared to me in the light of a frightful dream. Yet the vessel in which I was, the wind that blew me from the detested shore of Ireland, and the sea which surrounded me told me too forcibly that I was deceived by no vision, and that Clerval, my friend and dearest companion, had fallen a victim to me and the monster of my creation. I repassed in my memory my whole life, my quiet happiness while residing with my family in Geneva, the death of my mother, and my departure for Ingolstadt. I remembered, shuddering, the mad enthusiasm that hurried me on to the creation of my hideous enemy, and I called to mind the night in which he first lived. 
I was unable to pursue the train of thought. A thousand feelings pressed upon me, and I wept bitterly. Ever since my recovery from the fever, I had been in the custom of taking every night a small quantity of laudanum, for it was by means of this drug only that I was enabled to gain the rest necessary for the preservation of life. Oppressed by the recollection of my various misfortunes, I now swallowed double my usual quantity, and soon slept profoundly. But sleep did not afford me respite from thought and misery. My dreams presented a thousand objects that scared me. Towards morning I was possessed by a kind of nightmare. I felt the fiend's grasp in my neck, and could not free myself from it. Groans and cries rang in my ears. My father, who was watching over me, perceiving my restlessness, awoke me. The dashing waves were around, the cloudy sky above, the fiend was not here. A sense of security, a feeling that a truce was established between the present hour and the irresistible disastrous future, imparted to me a kind of calm forgetfulness, of which the human mind is by its structure peculiarly susceptible. Chapter 22 The voyage came to an end. We landed and proceeded to Paris. I soon found that I had overtaxed my strength, and that I must repose before I could continue my journey. My father's care and attentions were indefatigable, but he did not know the origin of my sufferings, and sought erroneous methods to remedy the incurable ill. He wished me to seek amusement in society. I abhorred the face of man. Oh, not abhorred! They were my brethren, my fellow-beings, and I felt attracted to even the most repulsive among them, as to creatures of an angelic nature and celestial mechanism. But I felt that I had no right to share their intercourse. I had unchained an enemy among them, whose joy it was to shed their blood and to revel in their groans. How they would, each and all, abhor me and hunt me from the world, did they know my unhallowed acts and the crimes which had their source in me. My father yielded at length to my desire to avoid society, and strove by various arguments to banish my despair. Sometimes he thought that I felt deeply the degradation of being obliged to answer a charge of murder, and he endeavoured to prove to me the futility of pride. "'Alas, my father,' said I, "'how little do you know me! Human beings, their feelings and passions, would indeed be degraded if such a wretch as I felt pride.' Justine, poor unhappy Justine, was as innocent as I, and she suffered the same charge. She died for it, and I am the cause of this. I murdered her. William, Justine, and Henry, they all died by my hands. My father had often, during my imprisonment, heard me make the same assertion. When I thus accused myself, he sometimes seemed to desire an explanation, and at others he appeared to consider it as the offspring of delirium, and that, during my illness, some idea of this kind had presented itself to my imagination, the remembrance of which I preserved in my convalescence. I avoided explanation, and maintained a continual silence concerning the wretch I had created. I had a persuasion that I should be supposed mad, and this in itself would forever have chained my tongue. But, besides, I could not bring myself to disclose a secret which would fill my hearer with consternation, and make fear and unnatural horror the inmates of his breast. I checked, therefore, my impatient thirst for sympathy, and was silent when I would have given the world to have confided the fatal secret. Yet still, words like those I have recorded would burst uncontrollably from me. I could offer no explanation of them, but their truth in part relieved the burden of my mysterious woe. 
Upon this occasion my father said, with an expression of unbounded wonder, "'My dearest Victor, what infatuation is this? My dear son, I entreat you never to make such an assertion again.' "'I am not mad,' I cried energetically. "'The sun and the heavens which have viewed my operations can bear witness of my truth. I am the assassin of those most innocent victims. They died by my machinations. A thousand times would I have shed my own blood, drop by drop, to have saved their lives. But I could not, my father, indeed I could not sacrifice the whole human race.' The conclusion of this speech convinced my father that my ideas were deranged, and he instantly changed the subject of our conversation and endeavoured to alter the course of my thoughts. He wished, as much as possible, to obliterate the memory of the scenes that had taken place in Ireland, and never alluded to them or suffered me to speak of my misfortunes. As time passed away I became more calm. Misery had her dwelling in my heart, but I no longer talked in the same incoherent manner of my own crimes. Sufficient for me was the consciousness of them. By the utmost self-violence I curbed the imperious voice of wretchedness, which sometimes desired to declare itself to the whole world, and my manners were calmer and more composed than they had ever been since my journey to the Sea of Ice. A few days before we left Paris on our way to Switzerland, I received the following letter from Elizabeth. My dear friend, it gave me the greatest pleasure to receive a letter from my uncle dated at Paris. You are no longer at a formidable distance, and I may hope to see you in less than a fortnight. My poor cousin, how much you must have suffered! I expect to see you looking even more ill than when you quitted Geneva. This winter has been passed most miserably, tortured as I have been by anxious suspense. Yet I hope to see peace in your countenance, and to find that your heart is not totally void of comfort and tranquillity. Yet I fear that the same feelings now exist that made you so miserable a year ago, even perhaps augmented by time. I would not disturb you at this period, when so many misfortunes weigh upon you, but a conversation that I had with my uncle, previous to his departure, renders some explanation necessary before we meet. Explanation? You may possibly say, what can Elizabeth have to explain? If you really say this, my questions are answered, and all my doubts satisfied. But you are distant from me, and it is possible that you may dread and yet be pleased with this explanation. And in a probability of this being the case, I dare not any longer postpone writing what, during your absence, I have often wished to express to you, but have never had the courage to begin. You well know, Victor, that our union had been the favorite plan of your parents ever since our infancy. We were told this when young, and taught to look forward to it as an event that would certainly take place. We were affectionate playfellows during childhood, and, I believe, dear and valued friends to one another as we grew older. But as brother and sister often entertain a lively affection towards each other without desiring a more intimate union, may not such also be our case? Tell me, dearest Victor. Answer me, I conjure you by our mutual happiness with simple truth. Do you not love another? You have travelled, you have spent several years of your life at Ingolstadt, and I confess to you, my friend, that when I saw you last autumn so unhappy, flying to solitude from the society of every creature, I could not help supposing that you might regret our connection, and believe yourself bound in honour to fulfil the wishes of your parents, although they opposed themselves to your inclinations. But this is false reasoning. I confess to you, my friend, that I love you, and that in my airy dreams of futurity you have been my constant friend and companion. But it is your happiness I desire, as well as my own, when I declare to you that our marriage would render me eternally miserable unless it were the dictate of your own free choice. Even now I weep to think that, born down as you are by the cruelest misfortunes, 
you may stifle, by the word honor, all hope of that love and happiness which would alone restore you to yourself. I, who have so disinterested an affection for you, may increase your miseries tenfold by being an obstacle to your wishes. Ah, Victor, be assured that your cousin and playmate has too sincere a love for you not to be made miserable by this supposition. Be happy, my friend, and if you obey me in this one request, remain satisfied that nothing on earth will have the power to interrupt my tranquillity. Do not let this letter disturb you. Do not answer to-morrow, or the next day, or even until you come, if it will give you pain. My uncle will send me news of your health, and if I see but one smile on your lips when we meet, occasioned by this or any other exertion of mine, I shall need no other happiness. Elizabeth Lavenza, Geneva, May 18th, 17 blank. This letter revived in my memory what I had before forgotten, the threat of the fiend. I will be with you on your wedding night. Such was my sentence, and on that night would the demon employ every art to destroy me and tear me from the glimpse of happiness which promised partly to console my sufferings. On that night he had determined to consummate his crimes by my death. Well, be it so. A deadly struggle would then assuredly take place, in which if he were victorious, I should be at peace, and his power over me be at an end. If he were vanquished, I should be a free man. Alas, what freedom! Such as the peasant enjoys when his family have been massacred before his eyes, his cottage burnt, his lands laid waste, and he is turned adrift, homeless, penniless, and alone, but free. Such would be my liberty, except that in my Elizabeth I possessed a treasure, alas, balanced by those horrors of remorse and guilt which would pursue me until death. Sweet and beloved Elizabeth, I read and re-read her letter, and some softened feelings stole into my heart, and dared to whisper paradisiacal dreams of love and joy. But the apple was already eaten, and the angel's arm bared to drive me from all hope. Yet I would die to make her happy. If the monster executed his threat, death was inevitable. Yet, again, I considered whether my marriage would hasten my fate. My destruction might indeed arrive a few months sooner, but if my torturer should suspect that I postponed it, influenced by his menaces, he would surely find other and perhaps more dreadful means of revenge. He had vowed to be with me on my wedding night, yet he did not consider that threat as binding him to peace in the meantime, for as if to show me that he was not yet satiated with blood, he had murdered Clerval immediately after the enunciation of his threats. I resolved, therefore, that if my immediate union with my cousin would conduce either to hers or my father's happiness, my adversary's designs against my life should not retard it a single hour. In this state of mind I wrote to Elizabeth. My letter was calm and affectionate. I fear, my beloved girl, I said, little happiness remains for us on earth, yet all that I may one day enjoy is centered in you. Chase away your idle fears. To you alone do I consecrate my life and my endeavors for contentment. I have one secret, Elizabeth, a dreadful one. When revealed to you it will chill your frame with horror, and then, far from being surprised at my misery, you will only wonder that I survive what I have endured. I will confide this tale of misery and terror to you the day after our marriage shall take place. For, my sweet cousin, there must be perfect confidence between us. But until then, I conjure you, do not mention or allude to it. This I most earnestly entreat, and I know you will comply. 
In about a week after the arrival of Elizabeth's letter, we returned to Geneva. The sweet girl welcomed me with warm affection, yet tears were in her eyes as she beheld my emaciated frame and feverish cheeks. I saw a change in her also. She was thinner and had lost much of that heavenly vivacity that had before charmed me, but her gentleness and soft looks of compassion made her a more fit companion for one blasted and miserable as I was. The tranquillity which I now enjoy did not endure. Memory brought madness with it, and when I thought of what had passed, a real insanity possessed me. Sometimes I was furious and burnt with rage, sometimes low and despondent. I neither spoke nor looked at any one, but sat motionless, bewildered by the multitude of miseries that overcame me. Elizabeth alone had the power to draw me from these fits. Her gentle voice would soothe me when transported by passion, and inspire me with human feelings when sunk in torpor. She wept with me and for me. When reason returned, she would remonstrate and endeavor to inspire me with resignation. Ah, it is well for the unfortunate to be resigned, but for the guilty there is no peace. The agonies of remorse poison the luxury there is otherwise sometimes found in indulging the excess of grief. Soon after my arrival my father spoke of my immediate marriage with Elizabeth. I remained silent. "'Have you, then, some other attachment?' "'None on earth. I love Elizabeth, and look forward to our union with delight. Let the day therefore be fixed, and on it I will consecrate myself, in life or death, to the happiness of my cousin.' "'My dear Victor, do not speak thus. Heavy misfortunes have befallen us, but let us only cling closer to what remains, and transfer our love for those whom we have lost to those who yet live.' Our circle will be small, but bound close by the ties of affection and mutual misfortune, and when time shall have softened your despair, new and dear objects of care will be born to replace those of whom we have been so cruelly deprived. Such were the lessons of my father, but to me the remembrance of the threat returned, nor can you wonder that, omnipotent as the fiend had yet been in his deeds of blood, I should almost regard him as invincible, and that when he had pronounced the words, I shall be with you on your wedding night, I should regard the threatened fate as unavoidable. But death was no evil to me if the loss of Elizabeth were balanced with it, and I therefore, with a contented and even cheerful countenance, agreed with my father that if my cousin would consent, the ceremony should take place in ten days, and thus put, as I imagined, the seal to my fate. Great God! If for one instant I had thought what might be the hellish intention of my fiendish adversary, I would rather have banished myself forever from my native country, and wandered a friendless outcast over the earth, than have consented to this miserable marriage. But, as if possessed of magic powers, the monster had blinded me to his real intentions, and when I thought that I had prepared only my own death, I hastened that of a far dearer victim. As the period fixed for our marriage drew nearer, whether from cowardice or a prophetic feeling, I felt my heart sink within me. But I concealed my feelings by an appearance of hilarity that brought smiles and joy to the countenance of my father, but hardly deceived the ever-watchful and nicer eye of Elizabeth. She looked forward to our union with placid contentment, not unmingled with a little fear, which past misfortunes had impressed that what now appeared certain and tangible happiness might soon dissipate into an airy dream and leave no trace but deep and everlasting regret. Preparations were made for the event. 
congratulatory visits were received, and all wore a smiling appearance. I shut up, as well as I could, in my own heart, the anxiety that preyed there, and entered with seeming earnestness into the plans of my father, although they might only serve as the decorations of my tragedy. Through my father's exertions a part of the inheritance of Elizabeth had been restored to her by the Austrian government. A small possession on the shores of Como belonged to her. It was agreed that, immediately after our union, we should proceed to Villa Lavenza and spend our first days of happiness beside the beautiful lake near which it stood. In the meantime I took every precaution to defend my person in case the fiend should openly attack me. I carried pistols and a dagger constantly about me, and was ever on the watch to prevent artifice, and by these means gained a greater degree of tranquillity. Indeed, as the period approached, the threat appeared more as a delusion, not to be regarded as worthy to disturb my peace, while the happiness I hoped for in my marriage wore a greater appearance of certainty, as the day fixed for its solemnization drew nearer, and I heard it continually spoken of as an occurrence which no accident could possibly prevent. Elizabeth seemed happy. My tranquil demeanor contributed greatly to calm her mind. But on the day that was to fulfill my wishes and my destiny, she was melancholy, and a presentiment of evil pervaded her, and perhaps also she thought of the dreadful secret which I had promised to reveal to her on the following day. My father was in the meantime overjoyed, and in the bustle of preparation, only recognized in the melancholy of his niece the diffidence of a bride. After the ceremony was performed, a large party assembled at my father's, but it was agreed that Elizabeth and I should commence our journey by water, sleeping that night at Evian, and continuing our voyage on the following day. The day was fair, the wind favorable, all smiled on our nuptial embarkation. Those were the last moments of my life during which I enjoyed the feeling of happiness. We passed rapidly along, the sun was hot, but we were sheltered from its rays by a kind of canopy, while we enjoyed the beauty of the scene, sometimes on one side of the lake, where we saw Mount Saleve, the pleasant banks of Montalegre, and at a distance surmounting all, the beautiful Mont Blanc, and the assemblage of snowy mountains that in vain endeavored to emulate her. Sometimes coasting the opposite banks, we saw the mighty Jura, opposing its dark side to the ambition that would quit its native country, and an almost insurmountable barrier to the invader who should wish to enslave it. I took the hand of Elizabeth. "'You are sorrowful, my love. Ah, if you knew what I have suffered and what I may yet endure, you would endeavor to let me taste the quiet and freedom from despair that this one day at least permits me to enjoy.' "'Be happy, my dear Victor,' replied Elizabeth. "'There is, I hope, nothing to distress you, and be assured that if a lively joy is not painted in my face, my heart is contented.' Something whispers to me not to depend too much on the prospect that is opened before us, but I will not listen to such a sinister voice. Observe how fast we move along, and how the clouds, which sometimes obscure and sometimes rise above the dome of Mont Blanc, render this scene of beauty still more interesting. Look also at the innumerable fish that are swimming in the clear waters, where we can distinguish every pebble that lies at the bottom. What a divine day! How happy and serene all nature appears!' Thus Elizabeth endeavoured to divert her thoughts and mine from all reflection upon melancholy subjects. But her temper was fluctuating. Joy for a few instants shone in her eyes, but it continually gave place to distraction and reverie. The sun sank lower in the heavens. 
we passed the river Drance and observed its path through the chasms of the higher and the glens of the lower hills. The Alps here come closer to the lake, and we approached the amphitheatre of mountains which formed its eastern boundary. The spire of Evian shone under the woods that surrounded it, and the range of mountain above mountain by which it was overhung. The wind, which had hitherto carried us along with amazing rapidity, sank at sunset to a light breeze. The soft air just ruffled the water, and caused a pleasant motion among the trees as we approached the shore, from which it wafted the most delightful scent of flowers and hay. The sun sank beneath the horizon as we landed, and as I touched the shore I felt those cares and fears revive, which soon were to clasp me and cling to me for ever. End of chapter 22 I know I said I wasn't going to break in again at the end, but he's not the sharpest knife in the drawer, is he? Ah, <sighs> bad times ahead. Bad times ahead. I hope your week is a lot better than Victor's. I'll try and get you the last two chapters before I leave. Have a good one. Please remember to support the people who support Craftlit. Go to knittingoutloud.com. Listen while you knit. You can find a blog for this podcast at craftlit.blogspot.com or craftlit.libsyn.com. That's craftlit, C-R-A-F-T-L-I-T, all one word, and Libsyn, L-I-B-S-Y-N. And of course, you can subscribe at iTunes. Craftlit is supported by the generous donations of its listeners, and for that, I am truly grateful. And do remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on.